You know, it almost goes without saying. But in the heart of every little boy that's just about ever lived, there is a desire to be super at something. When I was growing up, we loved all the normal superheroes and pretended to be one or another one of them when we were playing. Whether that was Superman or Spider-Man, Batman or the Incredible Hulk, uh, Shazam, and even the girls had Wonder Woman that they could pretend. You know, all of these that are still around, these superheroes, were all the things I grew up on in the, the 70s and early 80s. But, you know, there were others that ca captured our hearts in the 70s. How many of you remember the $6 million man? Yeah, yeah. All you people are old. Yeah. Or, or what about um, the bionic woman or the bionic dog? I, I don't remember that one. I think it wasn't around very long, but bionic dog's right there in the middle of that picture. So... But then there was G.I. Joe and, and Rambo and He-Man, not to mention all the heroes in the Star Wars universe. And then when you throw in the Dukes of Hazard and Hee Haw into this mix, you know, it, it's a miracle that Gen Xers aren't more messed up than we really are, you know? Um, I grew up in a culture where ordinary was boring. Everybody wanted to be somebody special. Somebody extraordinary, or we would pronounce that extraordinary. Well, in our sermon last week, we focused in on how God wants his children to be different. In fact, we called that being peculiar. In other words, not conform to the standards of this world, but offering our lives completely to him as holy and pleasing, a living, <coughs> a living sacrifice. <coughs> In some ways, the peculiarity of living a life for Christ can you know, in some demented way, meet this desire within us to be extraordinary. You see, in fact, it's not uncommon for people who consider themselves to be completely sold out for the cause of Christ to become proud of their perceived holiness. I think Paul understood this when the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen the words of this letter to the church at Rome. Immediately after his call in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, to be peculiar, to not be conformed to the world, but, but to be transformed. Immediately after that, Paul warns the believers to guard themselves against pride, especially pride in what God had assigned them to do. Now, folks, I believe that we all have a deep-seated desire to be extraordinary. But God is calling us to be ordinary. Let me explain. 
You see, if, the, if we are the superheroes of our stories, then there is no room for God to be glorified in us or through us. But when we see ourselves for who we really are, and we see God for who he really is, it is in that moment that we will begin to see our part, our role in his kingdom work, our role in this work may be small, but our role is essential. It's an essential part of a much bigger work that God is accomplishing through his local New Testament church. And you know what? God wants you to fulfill your role. He wants you to do your part. And that may seem very ordinary but that's what I believe God is calling us to be let's look in our text again we're in the middle or just beginning a series walking through this passage in Romans chapter 12 last week we looked at verses 1 and 2 this week we're going to look at verses 3 4 and 5 but let's read beginning in verses 1 and 2 just to get that immediate context the bible says in romans 12 i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of god what is good and acceptable and perfect or complete for by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This morning there are four big things that I want us to focus in on uh, from Romans chapter 12 verses 3 through 5. And all four of these hone in on our attitude or, or our dis disposition toward life. Now, all of us know what attitude is, right? Or at least you, you know it when you see it for sure. But the deal is, is usually when we think about attitude, we're looking at it from a negative perspective. We see it in a negative way. In other words, we may look at someone and say, don't give me any attitude, right? Or maybe you're thinking it, you just don't actually say it. But, but that's what we think of too many times when we're talking about attitude. But a person's attitude is indicative of what that person is thinking or what that person is feeling. And it reveals itself or it manifests, their attitude manifests itself in that person's behavior. The idea of disposition goes a little bit deeper than their attitude. You see, attitude may change. But a person's disposition is who they are, it, you know, 
how they think, what they do. It's referring more of the inherent qualities of their mind. It's referring to the character of who they are. So in the first verse of our text today, Paul is challenging the believers in Rome to have an attitude and a disposition that is unassuming. So let's look at this first, an unassuming attitude or disposition. Now, what do I mean when I say an unassuming attitude? Well, basically, we're talking about humility here. God wants us to have an attitude or a disposition of humility. If you describe a person or their behavior as someone who is unassuming, this is someone who uh, is quiet and they do not try to appear as being important. They are just unassuming. That's what I think God is asking of us when he says to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We're talking about being humble, modest, unpretentious. Well, let's walk through this verse uh, beginning at the beginning of verse 3. It says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Let's look at this phrase, for by the grace given to me. Now, Paul here is continuing his appeal to the believers that started back in verse 1 when he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So this is a continuation of that same appeal. And if you'll notice here, Paul is using the, the language of faith and grace or grace and faith. And he couples those two things together often in his writings. And, and you know, they're not the same, but they absolutely go together. So Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to you. Now, he's not trying to, to pull rank and, and say, you need to listen to me. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ and, and God has given me grace and now you need to pay attention. I don't think that's what he's trying to say here. But rather, he's saying, just like he said in verse 1 when he said, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Now he's saying, I'm speaking to you because of the grace of God. It refers to this outworking of God's mercy, his merciful will, and his gracious power. That is why Paul is, is reaching out to them and, and, and he's saying, because of this grace that we've experienced, because God is such a wonderful, merciful Savior, would you please listen to me? When Paul refers here to the grace given to him, he's setting up this conversation that he's about to have with this group of believers in Rome. And he wants them to see the correlation between grace the grace of God, and spiritual gifts, which is the outworking of God's power in and through believers. Now, we probably don't see that correlation very easily between grace and spiritual gifts. In fact, 
from just a, a, an English speaker's perspective, those things don't go together at all, necessarily. But if you go back to what this meant to the original recipients of this letter, this concept of grace and spiritual gifts were absolutely interlocked with one another because grace, the Greek word charis, spiritual gifts, the Greek word charismata. You see, grace is the charis of God. Spiritual gifts is the charismata, the outworking of grace of God. And so these two things go together, and it's this divine enabling that becomes a concrete expression of this charis, or what we refer to as charisma. This is the work of God through his believers. And so this is going to be something that we see throughout this week as well as in the next week and in the weeks to come. This grace of God coincides with the outworking of that grace through spiritual gifts. So this grace that Paul says that has been given to him is no different than the grace that was also given to the Romans. So he's not saying, because I'm special, because I'm extraordinary, and the grace I have received is extraordinary, you need to listen to me. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, because of this grace, this grace that I've experienced and you've experienced as well, because of that, and by the way, in verse 6, which we'll talk more about next week, it talks about uh, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, having charismata that differs, but according to the charis that was given to us, he's saying, you have God's grace, I have God's grace. We are equal in that regard. So because of that, Paul does not think more highly of himself, of himself than to the ones he is writing. In his mind, they are equal. And I think that's important for us to understand. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Let's look at that phrase now. You see, the issue of pride was a dangerous issue that Paul is saying it must be avoided. We must avoid this issue of pride. Now, you know, we, we say often here that in order to understand a text, we must look at its context. We must interpret a text within its context. And so we spent some time last Sunday morning talking about the context of Romans chapters 1 through 11. If you were able to go to a community group this week, you um, went through a series of studies when you look through all 11 chapters to find those big themes. And um, I was told by my wife that that was really hard and I should have made that easier in the community group. So I'm sorry if that was hard for you guys. Um, I, I, I thought, you know, all you got to do is just kind of glance over it. But apparently um, she didn't agree with me. So um, 
which she's not here today, by the way. It's not because she disagreed with me, though, okay? Um, Joanna's on a prayer retreat, and so, uh, and she told me she wasn't going to be watching this morning, so I can just say anything I want to about her, I guess. Um, but she's a wonderful person. I think that's what I was going to say. All right. But it, if, as we look at the context of, of what we're reading here in chapter 12, we, we've got to address what has just taken place in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And this in Romans 9 through 11 is dealing with uh, God's chosen people, the Jews, and their relation to the Gentiles and, and how all of that works out. And what we find here is that there are some potential problems with this issue of pride. James Dunn explained it this way. He said, whether it was pride in a race, such as being a Jew, whether it was pride in a race or loyalty to tradition, the Jewish religion, or he goes on and says, or in seeming favor by God or in charismatic prowess, in other words, pride in the fact that God loved me. <laughs> really? Are we going to be proud of the fact that God chose to love us when we were so undeserving? Or are we just going to accept that as the mercy of God, which it is? Or pride in how God is using me in some special way because of my great talents. Do you hear how that sounds? Such pride, Dr. Dunn says, such pride should be resisted and brought low. For it was the greatest danger to the unity and oneness of corporate identity as God's people. If we want to identify here in this body of Christ, the church, as God's people then we've got to resist this dangerous area of pride. That's why Paul said, every one of you, listen to what I am about to say. Dr. Timothy Keller wrote it this way. He said, part of being transformed <clears throat> in view of God's mercy is to have the right view of ourselves. Despite all the warnings our culture gives about the danger of low self-esteem, the real danger is self-centeredness and egocentricity. So what does a proper self-esteem look like? Well, as we think of ourselves with sober judgment, and we're going to talk about that phrase in just a minute, when we think of of ourselves with sober judgment, our esteem or the way we think about ourselves is grounded in the grace and faith of Jesus, in Jesus Christ. A proper self-esteem is only possible in terms of faith, which makes no claims but simply opens itself to God's grace. James Dunn goes on to say 
This is the message Paul has been emphasizing throughout the letter. That God works through faith and faith alone. So as we think about this, the absolute trust is the basis of our relationship with God. And absolute trust in God is the basis for our relationship with one another as well. This week I, I was spending a, a few minutes on Facebook and came across uh, a post by a friend from out of state. And, and basically it was a confession. You know, I, I'm not necessarily one to confess my sins on Facebook. Uh, but when she did, it was a blessing to me. And so I wanted to share just part of what she shared because it was refreshing to me. But at the same time, it was somewhat frightening to think about as well. She said this, she said, I am a recovering self-righteous person, recovering from legalism. She said, the Lord has used several traumatic events and utter dependence on, upon scripture to soften my hard heart. A decade ago, she went on, I judged people much too harshly. I assumed their motives without actual knowledge of their situation. In cases where I should have shown grace, I gave judgment. I humbled, I am humbled, she said, by the patience of the, those who knew I was legalistic and showed me grace even when I didn't show them grace. She went on to say this, Legalism is less of a struggle for me, for me these days, but harsh judgment seems to linger in unexpected ways. I find myself being judgmental of people who struggle in areas where I used to struggle. The Lord still has a lot of work to do in my heart. I wonder... How many of us have those same struggles today where we're more, we think we're more righteous than everyone else and so we pass judgment upon them. We are legalistic in the way that we live, which we talked about a little bit in our community groups this last week, or at least we did in my groups. How many of us struggle with that? Paul wrote here, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So the second thing we need to consider this morning is not just this having this unassuming attitude or disposition, but we must also have a realistic evaluation of ourselves <clears throat> a realistic evaluation you know what it is impossible to do a realistic evaluation of yourself if you lack self-awareness now I've talked on this a couple of times over the last few years in fact um, just a little over a year ago as we were walking through that series called it's complicated I, I preached a sermon on six steps to becoming self-aware or something like that. You can look it up. It was last June. 
Several years before that, I was walking through a series on Psalm 139. Um, the series was called I Am Known. We did this in February of 2020. If you have no recollection of this series, I understand why, because the world was turned upside down a month later. But this series in, in Psalm 139, during that time, I talked a couple of different times about this idea uh, called the Johari window. Um, let me take just a moment to, to refresh your memory about this Johari window. It's a normal four quadrant graph that you have in lots of different situations and so forth. But this particular graph uh, in the, the upper left hand corner, you have things that are known by me and by everyone else. In other words, it's public knowledge. Everybody knows about these things. And then if you go to the right, it's things that other people know about me, but I don't know about me. So these are blind spots that I have. If you go down, there are things that in every person's life, they hide from others. So these are things known by me, but unknown to others. So these are hidden areas of, of my life. They are the fa facades that I try to, to maintain so that people don't see how hypocritical I really am. And then in the bottom right quadrant is that aspect of things that I don't know about myself and you don't know about me either. They are simply unknown. Well, this idea of becoming more self-aware is trying to increase the size of that window of public knowledge, the things that I know about me and the things that you know about me. And so the way we do that is, number one, through feedback. If I ask for your feedback, if you tell me more about myself the way you see me, then that expands that window into my blind spots. Because when you tell me what's going on from your perspective, it enlightens me. Okay, the other option is when I disclose things to you, when I share, just like a moment ago, brother David said, can I be transparent for just a moment? Um, David, I would assume that 93.4% of the people here had no idea what you were talking about, you know. But it was something that he was disclosing to you. He was being transparent. And, and so he's giving you a glimpse into him and what's going on inside of his head. And if you wanted to run away screaming, I understand, you know. Um, I, I don't always want to see into his head, and I know he doesn't always want to see into mine. But when we do that, we reveal these hidden areas of our lives and thus become more self-aware. And so through feedback and disclosure, that window of public knowledge becomes larger. And so that's the idea behind this. Now here's the interesting thing, and this is what we talked about uh, a couple years ago. Because in Psalm 139, it talks about how God knows us. And you know what? All of that is known by God. 
He knows everything about me. He knows everything that everyone else knows about me. And he knows everything that you don't and I don't know about me. It is all known by God. And so with this in mind, how can we become more self-aware? Well, Paul here in Romans 12, 3 tells us that we ought to think with sober judgment. What does that mean? It's important to understand the original meaning of this phrase. You see, most English translations of the Bible use some form of this word sober in this verse. Think soberly or uh, or use sober judgment. Um, But there are a few translations that render this phrase differently. In the Amplified Version and the New American Standard Bible, it says to have sound Judgment, And that gives us a little different picture of that. In the Christian Standard Bible, it says to think sensibly. To think sensibly. But I think I, I like the New Living Translation the best here when it's describing this particular thing. Because in the NLT, it says to be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. When you look at the Thayer's Greek lexicon, it's this word here, sober, sober judgment. It means to exercise self-control or to put a moderate estimate upon oneself. And another Greek uh, tool that I often use, a resource I often use, explained it this way. And I I put this up on the screen so you could see it and contemplate it for a minute. To think with sober judgment is to turn the energy of the mind to recognize its limits and respect them. To think with sober judgment or to evaluate yourself honestly or to think sensibly about your life or to have sound judgment, it means To turn the energy of your mind to recognize the limits that you have and to respect those limits. I don't know, but folks, this is a whole lot easier said than done in my life. You know, it's one thing for me to recognize my limitations, but to actually allow that to impact the way I live is sometimes more difficult. I I think I can do a whole lot more than I think really I am able to do. And so maybe that's why this, this struck me so much. But when God is asking us to think with sober judgment, he's asking us to look at our lives in such a way that we see ourselves as he sees us. I think when Paul is telling them to think with sober judgment here, he's thinking of the moderation as expressed by the renewed mind. I mean, that's that's what he just said. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And so as we're thinking in that renewed mind, we need to recognize our limits and respect those things. And as we'll see in just a moment, that is measured in terms of faith. Let's look at that next phrase. It says, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does this mean? What is this measure of faith that God has assigned? Well, I think it's easier for us to look, first of all, at what it does not mean. And what it does not mean is that it does not refer to the amount of faith a person has. The word measure here is the Greek word metron. And normally I don't tell you Greek words, and I apologize, this is the third one today that I've shared. But this Greek word metron is the word that we get our word meter from. And what is a meter? It's not a measurement, but it is a tool for measuring, right? So, so here, it most likely means a standard of measurement, not an amount of measurement. So when it says, according to the measure of faith that God assigns, what it means is that all of us have been given saving faith through Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. And that is how we are to measure ourselves, according to the faith that Christ has saved us because of that faith. Regardless of our background, our abilities, all of us are saved in Christ by grace through faith. And so we need to recognize that we are all the same. There's not one of us that's better than another. We are all sinners simply saved by grace. So that's first. The second thing that we need to understand here is that we must all think of ourselves as having dis distinct gifts and abilities within the body of Christ. We may all be equal in that we are all sinners saved by grace, but we are all very different. We are the same in our standing with the gospel, but we are different in our varied abilities to minister to each other. We've all been, different, we've all been given different personalities, different temperaments. We have different histories and the baggage that we bring along with us. We have different abilities that equip us for a particular set of good works that God has created us to do. We are all different, but in standing before God, we are all sinners saved by the same grace that is offered to us. Do you remember what it, Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2? He said, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not, as a res not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's he saying here to the Ephesians? 
He's saying that salvation is by grace, through faith, for good works. You see that? By grace, through faith, for good works. But your works are going to look different than my works. And my works are going to look different from someone else's works. Does that make one of us better than another? Absolutely not. We are all simply sinners saved by grace through faith for good works. And so as we think about others in the church, in this body, we need to have a respect, a respectful appreciation for those differences. That's what he says next back in Romans 12. He says, for as in one body, verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. See, Paul has challenged us to not think too highly of ourselves, but rather honestly evaluate ourselves in relation to our standing in Christ. I'm a sinner, you are a sinner, we are all saved by grace through faith for good works. And so now he moves on to the subject of how we are to interact with one another. He says, in one body we have many members. You see, the church is the body of Christ. It's made up of many members, but we Believers are the body. The church is not this building. We may talk about going to the church. Uh, I mean, when I'm texting uh, and say I'm going, it almost always in my dictionary pulls up to church uh, because that's what I text most often and my phone thinks it knows me and maybe it does, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, but this is not the church. This building is a place that we come and the church comes together once a week on a Sunday morning. We are the church. The people of the church. People are the church. But you know what? I want us to realize something else. Because this is a prevalent thing that is taught among a lot of evangelicals. They'll, they'll talk about the church... And the, the big C church. Have you heard that before? Um, and what they're talking about is the local church and then believers throughout the world as the big C church. Folks, that's not taught in scripture. That, when we talk about all believers everywhere, we're talking about the family of God. Or you might refer to that as the kingdom of God. But when talking about the church, we're always talking about a local, autonomous, self-governing, self-supporting, and self-reproducing body with Christ as its head. And pay close attention to that. I am a member of the body. I am not in any way, shape, or form the head of this body. Jesus Christ is the head. We all have a function, a role within this body. Somebody may say I'm the big mouth uh, of the body. I don't know. Um, I would probably agree with that, I guess. 
But we all have a role, and Jesus Christ is the head. So what does that mean? You and I are the church, and we must look to Christ and his leadership and his word to guide us in what we are to do. And so since the body is the church, and the church has many members, we have a responsibility to work hard to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's what Paul told us if we look back at Ephesians again in chapter 4 this time. He tells the church there, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, you see that? Once again, we see humility. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You ever feel that? Dealing with your fellow church members? Just got to put up with them sometimes? Yeah? That's what he's saying. But he says, bear with them in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace, there's that word again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see, we are one body. But we are many members. And what Paul tells the church at Rome is that the members do not all have the same function. Notice again what that said in Ephesians 4, 7. The, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Just like we find in Romans chapter 12, this idea of grace, charis, is uh, closely linked here to this idea of spiritual gifts or the charismata. The grace of God has been measured out to us through salvation. And now it is God's will for us to serve him. And as we serve him, we're doing so according to the outworking of his grace. That's the, the meaning of spiritual gift, the charismata of God, the outworking of God's grace in our lives. As I shared earlier, we have been given distinct personalities, temperaments, histories, and abilities that equip us for a particular set of works that God has created for us to do. In fact, he before the foundations of the world, determined what that would look like in my life and in yours. But we have also been given the Holy Spirit of God to indwell us. He has taken up residence in our soul if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior. And so, because He is in us, He is able to work through us. Folks, please understand that the outworking of God's grace, also known as spiritual gifts, are not some talent that you have that God gifted to you to use at your will. That is not spiritual gifts. 
spiritual gifts is the work of God in your life. It is his power. It is his ability at work in us. We'll talk more about that next week. You know, another prominent passage, we've, we've looked at Ephesians 4, we've obviously been in Romans chapter 12. Another prominent passage that teaches on this eye of different, idea of differing gifts is 1 Corinthians 12. And after listing out uh, a list of spiritual gifts, notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11. He says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The spirit of God works in your life individually to bring about his will for your life. If you will simply allow him to work through him to work through you now we're going to have an opportunity to dive a little deeper into these passages dealing with spiritual gifts in your community group not this week but but next week but for now it is important that we realize that we are the church not this building but we are the church and each of us has a role to fulfill in this body and that we are all equally important for the proper functioning of this body. So the last thing I want us to look at this morning is a sincere acceptance of others. Go back, if you would, to Romans 12 and let's read verse 5 once again. It says, so... That's kind of like the, the mini form of the word therefore, by the way. <laughs> In light of this, he says, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So let's think about this sincere acceptance of others. You know, there is a, a really big difference between a sincere acceptance of others and a superficial tolerance of others. I wonder this morning, which is true of you and your relationships with individuals here in this church? You see, the definition of sincere is Free from pretense or deceit, proceeding from genuine feelings, saying what they genuinely feel or believe. In other words, not hypocritical. Are we sincerely accepting of others? Or are you only tolerating others? Are there certain people here in this church, your fellow church members, that you merely tolerate. You know, I would, I would encourage you, I would challenge you to take a long, hard look at yourself in this area. I mean, that's what Paul said uh, when he said to think with sober judgment. 
to take an honest evaluation of yourself in this area so that you can get your heart right with the Lord. Are there people here that you merely tolerate rather than sincerely accept? What I would challenge you to do is kind of a four-step process here. Number one, I would, I would challenge you to identify those in this church that you struggle to accept, to sincerely accept. And you know what? That, that process of identifying them is probably not very difficult. All you got to say is, Lord, who drives me nuts at the church? I hope I'm not on your list, but you know what? I may be, and I, I get that. Who is it that drives me nuts? Identify them. Number two step is start praying for them and praying for your attitude toward them. Key thing right there, y'all. Pray for that person that drives you crazy. And then seek, number three, seek to understand how God wants to utilize that person in this body. Did you hear that? Every single one of us here today has a purpose, a role in this body. What is yours? What is that role of that person that drives me nuts? You know, God put them here for a purpose. Seek to understand their role, and then you can understand their value to this body. Which is number four. See them as God sees them. And God sees them as a valuable member of this body. Are there any people that you merely tolerate rather than sincerely accept? Well, let's look at this text in verse 5. The first thing it says is, we are one body in Christ. We are individually different, but we are one body in Christ. I would love to have time to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I mean, you could read the whole chapter, but uh, more specifically, at least from verse 14 to 26. I don't have that time this morning. I encourage you to maybe look at that later. But look, if you will, at the second half of verse 24. 1 Corinthians 12, 24b, the Bible says, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, folks, what happens to one member of this body affects everyone else in this body. If something bad happens, we will all mourn together. If something good happens, we will all rejoice together. We are one body. But we are also one 
in the body of Christ. What do you mean? It says we are in him. We are in Christ. This phrase in Christ reminds us that Christ is the living presence holding this body together. The church is not just a religious uh, organization of people, but it is the mysterious manifestation of God the Son interceding on, at the right hand of God on our behalf. Romans 8.34 By the Spirit who dwells in us and among us who are in Him. Romans 8.10-14 and because we are in Christ, Paul goes on to say, we are individually members one of another. What does that mean? We are individually members one of another. I think it's telling us that not one of us is more important than another one. We are individually members of one another, we are one body in Christ. Now you may not agree with that statement that not one of us is more important than another. And you may not agree with that statement because in your mind, you look at your own life and you say, well, I'm not as important as somebody else in the church. I'm not doing as much as they are. They, they must be more important. But folks, God says we are all equally important. And so I wonder today if you think maybe you're not as important to this body, have you considered that you may not be functioning at 100% in the body? Doctors have these tests now that measure the functionality of the organs or the members of our physical bodies. And they can determine at what percentage rate a particular organ is functioning. Um, I have sisters who, who uh, have dysfunctioning organs. I have one that has three kidneys, but only one of them works. I have another one who has a heart issue that unfortunately we just found out the function of her heart has gone from 40% function down to 20. I appreciate your prayers for, for my sister Amanda. Are you functioning in this church at 20%? Or are you giving your all? We are individuals, but folks, we are interconnected. We are the church. We are the body of Jesus Christ. Let me close by saying this because I've gone way over my time today. We want you to be a part of this body. If it is God's will for you and your family, we want you to be a part of this body. Church membership is an important part of being able to function within the body. <laughs> I sit or stand here and uh, look back at the back and, and see Brother Troy Rapond. I didn't ask him if I could share this, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway, Brother Troy, because you'll forgive me, I know. Years ago, Brother Troy was up here helping in all kinds of ways and, 
and this and that. And so finally, one day we were sitting right up here at the front and uh, Troy was telling me all these different ideas of things that we needed to do. And if you don't know it, Troy is kind of over the infrastructure of all our technology here at the church. Um, he, he handles lots of IT kind of stuff. And he was sharing all these ideas, and he said, well, you know, y'all should do this. And I said, you know what, Troy? If you would just join the church, you could do this. It was about that blunt, too, wasn't it, Troy? Yeah. And you know what? A week later, he joined the church. And he's been serving, functioning, behind the scenes in ways that are tremendously helpful to us. That's one story of about a hundred here. If you are not an official member of this body, would you consider talking with me or talking with one of the other pastors about how you can join us? Because in order to be able to function in the body, you've got to be a member. But folks, if you're already a member of this body... Are you living in light of the truth that we have discovered today? Do you think more highly of yourself than you ought? Or do you not think highly enough of yourself? Have you discovered God's plan for how he wants you to serve him? Do you appreciate the differences among the members of this body? Or are there any members that you find yourself merely tolerating rather than sincerely accepting. Each and every follower of Christ has received a measure of grace through faith. That's what our text tells us. That grace saves us from our sins. What are you doing with what God has given you? He just wants us to be ordinary, fulfill our role, for fulfill our function within his body. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to share these words. And uh, Father, forgive me for going so long this morning, but thank you for all that you have shared with us in your word. And so, Father, as we contemplate these things, I just pray, Father, that you would help us to see um, what we as individuals need to do uh, because we are one body in Christ, but we are members of one another. And so, Father, help us to see these things today. Help us to know how to obey your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.